Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Nicola Plain, CEO of Actionariat, the Zurich-based startup whose vision is to use blockchain technology to create liquid capital markets for private companies, starting in Switzerland. Nicola, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks. Now, I mentioned um, uh, a little of where you are. Could you tell us a bit more about your own background and the backgrounds of your your co-founders and indeed of the 175 uh, uh, shareholders that you you have? What what in your personal history has inspired the creation of Actionariat? So I have a classic business background. I studied um, business at the University of St. Gallen. Um, I have a master's in business engineering. Um, the other two founders actually are techies. So um, they developed the first version of our uh, software themselves. And what inspired us to do what we do um, basically was seeing a problem in, in private markets with um, shares that were extremely liquid. And then on the other hand, seeing the opportunity that blockchain technology brings and uh, the combination of these two would would potentially solve a problem. That was the initial idea, and that's that's uh, where where we started. Well, I'll come back to to the blockchain technology a bit, a bit later on, uh, but I was very struck by the, the vision that you've stated, which is to enable this long term value investing, emphasis on long term and value investing, building this culture of local, uh, sustainable, transparent, and centralized uh, finance. So that's a pretty. Um, complete contradiction of how uh, speculative global stock markets have worked for uh, for 100, 150 odd years. So what sort of issues and investors are you looking for to share that, that vision with you? So for the investors, we think um, if you're a retail investor and you're not doing this professionally, you maybe shouldn't invest in a company from overseas. So for example, you shouldn't invest in a China-based company that you can't really grasp what they're doing and if they're doing it in a good way. So the idea was for retail investors, why don't you just invest in these companies that you know, that you're probably a customer of or you're a supplier um, for these companies. So you know them, you have, a, let's not call it insider information, but you have you have a, some information about the company and you can really um tell if the product or the service makes sense because as i said maybe you're a customer so um these type of investors um are are those that we target mostly and um that's where we also say it makes sense to invest more uh, locally uh, and in companies that you that you know mm-hmm. um on the other side the the companies that we're targeting are um, startups as well as SMEs in Switzerland, and that there can be a broad uh, variety of companies uh, that could that we could potentially target. The most interesting companies, though, are the B2C companies, because they come with a large community um, that they can leverage and uh, ask if they want to become uh, co-owners. Uh, and I'll, I'll come back to that. that point as well because I think it's an important one can we just talk a little bit about what it's like being in Switzerland how important has it been to actually be in Switzerland you've got this very large uh, sector of, uh, of private companies there um, in terms of the the economic and commercial environment in Switzerland how important was that we'll talk about the law and and, and the financial system a bit in the next question but 
How important is it not to be in Switzerland, given the structure of the Swiss economy? I think it's it's not a bad country to start off with, um, because, as you said, we have a very strong SME sector in Switzerland. So the backbone of the economy are uh, SMEs. Um, they are very robust, very solid. So that's a very good um, base to start off with. And then on the other hand, we have this startup ecosystem, which is also growing more and more money flowing into Swiss startups. Of course, there are uh, countries in this world where the startup ecosystem is even more vital. Um, but uh, I would say what we have here in Switzerland is, is not a bad base uh, to start off with. So I would say the economic structures in Switzerland um, are quite good uh, for such a business as we have, but maybe there are markets that would be even more suitable for that. We're talking about 500,000 um, privately owned companies in Switzerland. So it's a large sector in a relatively small country, isn't it? True. Now, uh, only Lord. 1% of the companies is listed on a stock exchange. Not, yeah. even, not even 1%. Uh, yeah. yeah, so it's, it's a big growth opportunity for you. Now, the law, Switzerland has this blockchain or DLT law in place, but then so does Liechtenstein, so does um, so does Luxembourg. So how helpful has that, the Swiss version, been for you? And did you look at Liechtenstein and, and Luxembourg as alternatives? Um, yes, we, we looked at these other legislations as well. Um, I have to say that the Swiss legislation is, um, in my eyes, the most flexible one. So compared to, for example, uh, Luxembourg, where you have to go through a financial intermediary if you want to issue securities. In Switzerland, that's not the case. So a company can issue their own shares directly without uh, the use of any financial intermediary. So that's one of the, the factors that makes this law extremely flexible and, and uh, also very usable for us. Talk a little bit about the issuers you're after now. You said you're interested in startups as well as uh, SMEs. You're particularly interested in B2C companies because they have this built-in uh, natural shareholder base, if you like. So if I said to you, what's your principal target group? Does that question not make sense to you because you kind of know what issues you want when you see them? Or can you um, paint a picture of what the structure of the market you're addressing actually looks like between SMEs, startups, B2C? Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, we want to have a good mix between startups um, and value investments. So more mature SMEs um, that already have a proven track record. And I think if you have a balance between the two, then you also offer the possibility to diversify within uh, the companies that we offer. And of course, uh, no matter if it's a B2, uh, sorry, if it's an SME or a startup, uh, the important part is that you have a large community that you can leverage. Um, that's always a plus. So if we actively go out and target customers, which we barely do because we have a lot of uh, inbounds that we have to work on. Um, but if we would do that, then we would definitely target B2C companies. And then, as I said, a good mix between young startup with a high pro a growth potential and uh, more established SMEs with a smaller uh, growth potential uh, is the, the, what we are aiming for. And the type of issuers that uh, you've worked with already and, and who are interested in working with you, is there any pattern to the type of industries they're in? You, you mentioned the B2C thing, but are you attracting, I don't know, a lot of um, grocery chains or travel companies? Can you describe sectorally where you're getting the most interest? Uh, that's a very interesting question that I get asked uh, a lot. Mm -hmm. um, 
funnily, there is no industry uh, trend yet that that, uh, that we can see. So we really have a very broad spectrum of companies. And sometimes people assume that um, most of the clients are from the Web3 space because they understand blockchain and they know the potential of the blockchain technology. But as a matter of fact, that is not the case. Um, so we have, I think, about two or three Web3 companies, but not more. Um, so there's really no trend yet uh, that I can see within within the industries. Does that mean that the blockchain technology is a sort of secondary interest to the issue as you're talking to? They're actually much more interested in the capital raising than how totally. you do it. Yeah. yeah, totally. So, I mean, that should also be the goal. Yeah, blockchain technology is only a means to the end. And um, if it doesn't provide value, then it's probably the wrong technology. So our goal is to make it as easy as possible so the issuers, as well as the investors, don't have to worry a lot about what um, technology they're working on. Uh, because, as you said, at the end of the day, the issuer wants to collect money and the investor wants to make money. And that's all they care about. And the rest is uh, more of our problem to, to make it easy and convenient. One distinctive feature of your model is that issuers can create shares in advance and hold these in reserve until they need to to raise the funds that obviously makes it easier for them to to raise funds as an opportunity to invest comes along but how does that model work in terms of uh swiss company law does company law support that proposition you know creating these shares and not issuing them and how does it work in practice uh, is this proving very popular with the issuers you're working with and you know they see the benefits of that Mm -hmm. um, I think the issuers see the benefits of that, but of course, it's not a proven model. So also the law is not tailored towards such a case. So the law is tailored um, towards a fixed traditional financing round. And, and now what we are doing is we're stretching the boundaries a bit um, of, the, of the existing laws. Um, it takes a little bit of an effort um, upfront uh, to create these shares and take them uh, into the company. But um, as you did this, you are much more flexible because you can onboard an investor at any time. And we have a limitation there in Switzerland. So um, you cannot hold more than 10% of your own shares at a time. Uh, so if you want to sell more than 10%, you have to do it in different batches. Um, but that's it. So that's, that's the only limitation with the upfront um, effort that you have to do to create the shares. But once done this, um, it's, it's extremely flexible and, and highly convenient for both sides, for the issuer, but also for the investors. Yeah. And this allows a continuous form of uh, fundraising. So you're not in this fixed fundraising rounds, but you can continuously sell shares as long as you have them. And if you're running out of shares and you still want to sell more, then you create new shares, take them into the company again, and then you keep selling. So with this model, we really enable a continuous way of fundraising, uh, which has a lot of advantages. Mm -hmm. And are you able to prove through that model that uh, that issuers have, have actually reduced their cost of capital by using the model you've just described? Is it cheaper for them to do this? I would say so. Yes, I would say they reduce the cost of, of capital. Definitely. Um, you don't have to go through an intermediary. The costs that we charge are very low. So I would say overall, it's, it's definitely a reduction uh, of cost of capital. Yeah. Uh -huh. And it enables them to raise equity rather than debt. Forgive me, I don't understand. You know, I'm not that familiar with how the Swiss small company sector, you know, what their capital structure is. But I imagine equity is more expensive for them than debt, and this is presumably a new uh, capital source for them as well, right? 
Yes, I mean, of course, um, equity in general is more expensive than debt. Um, still, we have some SMEs that preferred to raise more capital by issuing uh, equity uh, instead of uh, getting a loan uh, from a bank. Mm -hmm. So it seems like uh, also the SMEs see some advantages in having people being shareholders and, and not only having uh, money uh, as disposal. So, of course, if you have people that co-own the company, they have a much higher motivation to help the company in, in any terms. So um, I think that's one of the advantages that also the SMEs that are using our tools are seeing. And that's why they um, decided to, to issue equity instead of debt. Of course, I assume, uh, I don't know, but uh, most of the companies that are issued that with us also have a loan, uh, at least those that are profitable, because for the other ones, it's probably a bit hard to get a, get a, um, a loan. Okay. Can I ask you where the where the business has, has actually got to? How many issues have you hosted so far? And how deep is the pipeline of, of prospective issues coming up? So we have uh, 20, 29 companies live on our platform. And we have over 60 signed contracts. So more than half of the issuers is still in the onboarding process with us. And um, the demand is still very high. So we still didn't have the time to do outbound uh, because we have so many inquiries from potential clients. Mm -hmm. um, next year, we are targeting uh, 200 uh, new issuers. So at the end of the of the year 2023, we will have, if everything goes well, around 200 and 250 uh, clients. Right, and you'll still have 499,000 to go, so <laughs> <laughs> room for growth. Um, in, in terms of how you uh, have to support these issuers, what sort of services are you having to supply to them? I mean, a normal IPO, of course, you would have investment banks, you'd have marketing agents, you'd have lawyers and so on. So are you getting involved in things like actually helping these companies draft the prospectus, their shareholder agreements? Are you actually minting the tokens for them, doing the marketing communications, the investor communications, the customer due diligence? Uh, are you doing the, the financial crime checks? Are you maintaining the register? How many services are you actually having to supply to make these issues work? So most of the services that are not technical services, um, we offer through third parties. Um, so for example, the due diligence check is performed by a third party. Uh, then we have a, a law firm uh, assisting us, um, leading the clients through the whole um, heuristic process of setting up and, and creating the legal framework for them. And um, of course, we also have partners that can help with valuations. Um, and we also have marketing partners. But as I said, everything that is non-technical, we basically outsource and provide it through third parties. But if you look at the whole package, it's, it's pretty similar um, to an IPO, but much cheaper. And usually uh, the prospectus is not needed because there is an exemption in Switzerland, as well as in, in the UK, as I learned, if you stay below eight million pounds or Swiss francs in Switzerland a year, uh, then you do not have to provide a prospectus. So usually our clients stay below that threshold and do not have the obligation to, to come up with a prospectus. So as you're explaining, you're, you're primarily a, a technology company providing these, these technical services, which I assume include minting the tokens as it were uh, mm -hmm. but do do your issuers have to make use of these third-party providers that you make available or is this just a 
a convenient choice you offer to them. They could use their own lawyers or their own uh, customer due diligence provider if they wanted. So um, the law firm is mandatory. You have to go through the legal process with our law firm because we want to make sure that everything is legally sound. That, of course, is extremely important and elementary. Um, also, the due diligence check is mandatory, of course, because we have to provide a certain quality gate uh, to make sure that we do not have scammers using our tools uh, being listed on our platform. Um, so that's also mandatory. Then on the other hand, um, we have some financial market experts that can help you with valuation. We have marketing companies that can help you with, uh, with PR and marketing measures. This is not mandatory, but an optional feature that we offer. Now, a little bit about investors. How do you help issuers find investors? Uh, you mentioned you have these 14 or 1500 investors. Um, who are they? And is there a typical profile of, a, of, a, of an actionariat investor? So currently, the investors are mainly people like me. Um, before, we invested in stock-listed equity. And now we have the possibility to diversify into private equity. So most of the people um, are used to doing investments on uh, listed on, on exchanges, and now they're moving over and, and start investing in private equity. So usually people with a little bit of experience in investment, a little bit of spare money, of course, and maybe not uh, in their 20s, um, but rather in their 30s or 40s. Um, so that's the, the typical investor at Aktionariat currently. So if you're co-investing with some of the companies that are listing on, on Actionariat, uh, does that not present you with quite difficult choices sometimes? After all, you, you, you have almost a conflict of interest there, which you really want these people to be on your thing. But do you, do you um, have faced difficult choices? Like, I want to invest in this one, but not that one. So me personally, seeing all these companies uh, going live, I, I really have to behave and, and, and uh, make sure that I'm not tempted too much to invest in most of these companies. And of course, I, I don't invest in all of these, but um, yeah, it's a difficult choice to make because of course, uh, I also need to make sure that my portfolio is diversified and I do not have only uh, private equity investments in my portfolio. So yeah, that's, uh, that's like the daily struggle, yeah. Uh, to make sure to not spend all of your money on, on private equity. <laughs> are you to some extent running a, a capital introduction service as well? Like, are you running investor events to showcase these companies? Yes, that is correct. So we have uh, different channels. Uh, let's put it that way. Um, when we have new companies, we distribute that message through all of our channels. And as you said, also twice a year, uh, we are hosting an investor event where the companies can apply uh, to pitch on stage and to have a booth. And, and these events are extremely valuable because they also offer an opportunity to get in touch directly in the physical world with uh, potential investors. So, um, yeah, we always get extremely positive feedbacks out, out from these events. And, and I think that's a nice addition to the channels, to the other channels that we have. Can you explain to me what your relationship is with the, with the founder studio? I wasn't quite clear how that relationship worked. Mm -hmm. Very good question. So Founders Studio um, is aiming to provide a TikTok for founders, basically. So since we operate on the DLT law, and that only covers AGs, so stock corporations, um, we cannot help all of the companies uh, that are not established yet. 
that are not stock corporations. So there is a, a part of the market that we cannot cover today. And Founder Studio is aiming to help exactly these uh, type of companies and founders. Um, people that have an idea of another company yet, um, people that maybe founded a company, but it's not a stock corporation yet. Because in Switzerland, in order to found a stock corporation, you need 100K. Uh, mm -hmm. So the hurdle is quite high. And um, the idea is that this is a sales channel for us. So all of the clients that we cannot serve yet, they will go through um, found a studio, raise the initial capital in order to establish a stock corporation, and then they will be handed over to us. So we tokenize the shares, we hand them out to the investors, and then they can start with the continuous fundraising on our platform. So for us, it's really like a sales channel. And for Founders Studio, it's a partner that they can hand their clients uh, over to um, when they were successful in the initial fundraising round. And for the issuers, Founder Studio is about finding people to help them raise that first 100K. It's an investor introduction service for them, is it? Or do they get yeah. other services as well? That is correct. So it's an easy, straightforward way to present yourself and your idea and your maybe uh, already established company um, in a very, um, let's say, gen set type of way, uh, TikTok way with videos, selfie videos and, and such um, type of, of content. All right. Now, you have these relationships with uh, with Monarium and, and, and BT as well. Um, are those in place to help investors get money onto your onto your platform i mean crudely speaking you know i'm an investor i'm i've got a lot of swiss francs but i actually want to get onto onto this blockchain network and buy these tokens in these companies do you help with that or do monarium and, and bt do that for you or is it more complex than that um no it's actually exactly that um actually it's it's more the off-ramping part than the on-ramping part. So you have to see that you can buy these tokenized shares without any crypto. So you can do a normal bank transfer, send your fiat money, and then you will receive the tokenized shares. But the other way around is a bit more complicated. So if you sell the shares, you will receive the crypto franc, which is a Swiss stable coin. Now, what you're going to do with the crypto franc, usually people that are not very crypto savvy, they don't know what to do with the crypto franc. So that's why we offer an easy way to get out and swap the crypto franc into a Swiss franc or whatever fiat currency you like. And uh, that's what we are using BT for and also Monarium. BT was um, integrated more for the on-ramping. So if you want to buy some cryptos, um, you can do that through a BT uh, integration in our app. And uh, Monarium was more, more for the off-ramping part. Mm -hmm. And talking of on and off ramps, is it part of your ambition to attract institutional investors in the medium or long term? Yes, it actually is. So we are also taking measures to attract them. So the depth of the information that the companies provide is being increased. So we are introducing new standards of uh, information that you have to provide. And then in addition to that, we're working with a, a provider for data rooms. So we want to integrate the data room service so you can give access to institutional investors to your data room and thereby be more attractive. Because currently, um, what mostly holds institutional investors back from investing in these companies is the depth of information. It's just not uh, high enough. Am I right to think that in terms of attracting institutional investors, your relationship with SDX is going to be quite important to that you're talking about on and off ramps for example um stx is the 
the digital arm of the Swiss Stock Exchange. Um, am I right to think that that is a way of um, making institutional investors more comfortable with getting involved with your market, or is it deeper and richer than that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, on the one hand, of course, it's a, it's a very good signal of trust uh, that we can provide if we can say we work together with SDX. And um, since SDX is also working together with all of the major banks in Switzerland, they also have access to their clients, um, which can be institutional investors. So I would say the cooperation um, with SDX is, is, is beneficial on every end, if you want. So, so it gives us trust, but it also gives us access to an investor group that we didn't have access to so far. So um, that's extremely beneficial on, on end. Every end, if you want so. Yeah, I can see the advantages for you. What are the advantages for SDX in working with you? So SDX um, has the possibility to, to offer access to these tokenized shares um, that we issued or our clients are issuing using our tools. So um, they can open the investment spectrum for their clients uh, by um, offering shares that are tokenized uh, from fintechs like Oxenoriot. Uh, and of course, they, they see, maybe they see a risk that uh, part of their business is, is going away from them and uh, moving to fintech. So they want to, to be integrated. And I think that makes a lot of sense in the, the bird's eye view, especially. Um, it does make sense to have like fragmented uh, financial system so you have the traditional financial system and then you have the new fintechs with with blockchain technology and so on but and, and it's fragmented but i think we all win if we have an integrated system uh that makes sure that both worlds are integrated uh, into each other so the DeFi world but also the tr traditional finance world um we all win if if uh if we have like a, a strong alliance there and and we make sure that you can get easily in and out uh DeFi or TradFi. And at the end of the day, as I said in the beginning, blockchain technology is only a means to the end. So if blockchain technology works well in, in one sector, let's say private markets, uh, doesn't mean that it also has to work well in other sectors. At the end of the day, uh, we just want to offer uh, investors the whole spectrum of investment opportunities. And if that's on the blockchain or not, that's that's for the investors and the issuer, that's not crucial. Um, and that's why I think an integrated uh, financial system with partners like SDX makes a lot of sense. The Swiss Stock Exchange obviously has a, a central securities depository, has a digital one as well. There's no suggestion at this point that the issuers might issue their shares into uh, either the SDX, uh, CSD, or the uh, or the conventional CSD owned by the Swiss Stock Exchange. And I ask you that question because I do see uh, central securities depositories around the world, United States as an example, um, but so is South Africa, where the CSDs have seen a business opportunity for themselves uh, in getting involved with the issuers active in, in capital raising for, for private companies. I was about to say tokenization, but it's not always tokenization. Sometimes it's it's something more conventional. Is that part of your discussion with, with the Swiss Stock Exchange or is it too premature to be talking about that? Um, it is part of the discussion, but I don't think that SDX aims for becoming an issuer of tokenized shares. Um, they're more like the gateway to the players of the traditional finance 
for uh, fintechs like us. Um, of course, they have a CSD license um, and they will also make use of it. Um, but yeah, I can't, at that point, I can't say more than that. Um, but it's part of the discussions, yes, uh, to make it short. <laughs> and is, I don't know whether custody is part of that discussion as well, but perhaps you could explain a little bit about what the custody arrangements are that you offer investors. They have to bring their own digital wallet. Do you provide a wallet? Do you have third-party providers who could, could work with them? Where are people going to custody their, their tokens? Yeah, so today... Um, you can either bring your own wallet, so our tools are compatible with all the wallets that support the Wallet Connect protocol. So basically every Ethereum wallet can be used. And we also use uh, our own wallets, the Yacht app. So it's, a, it's an application on Android and iOS. And furthermore, we also offer a hardware solution for the wallet. So you have something more tangible. Um, we are starting a pilot project now. Actually, we will announce it at the beginning of the next year um, with a first Swiss bank that offers to take your ERC-20 security tokens into custody. So that means instead of connecting your wallet in the buying process, you just choose to um, give these shares into custody at this bank. And then in the background, everything, uh, all the information needed will be handed over to that bank and you will start the onboarding process if you're not a client yet. So pretty soon we will offer a first uh, additional solution where you don't have to uh, take your shares into self-custody, but you can hand over the responsibility to a bank. How does the, the asset servicing and shareholder rights components of, of issuing equity work in, you, in your system? Obviously, investors want to collect their entitlements. They want to vote their stock. They want to make sure that their, their ownership in the company isn't being diluted by uh, issues to, to third parties. How does all that work from a shareholder point of view, an investor point of view? It's not uh, not a lot different from to, from the traditional world. So since the DLT law is basically one additional article in the Code of Obligations, the Swiss Code of Obligation, which introduced a new form of shares, everything else remains the same. So all the existing rules for stock operations remain the same. There is just a new type of share that has been introduced, which is ledger-based security. Um, so everything else remains the same. That's the, one of the beauties um, of the Swiss DLT law. It's super lightweight. Um, it's basically just an additional form of shares, and that's it. Everything else remains the same. So the old rules still apply, uh, which works out very well, I have to say. So, um, yeah, nothing changes. You just have your shares on a blockchain, uh, and you they're just more easily transferable. Okay. One last question on, on investors. I was very interested to see that there's no uh, know your client, anti-money laundering, counting the financing of terrorism, sanction screening checks, uh, obligation laid on, on issuers to check that investors aren't money launderers or financial criminals of some other kind. But are you finding that most issuers run checks on investors anyway? Uh, and if they do, are you referring to them to a, to a third party to help with that work? I think you mentioned earlier on that you do. Yes, so we offer a KYC feature that you can have as an issuer. Uh, so far, I think 99% of our clients are opting out and not using it because it poses a, an additional hurdle for an investor to, to buy your shares because they have to go through an identification process. 
But we offer such a feature also through a third party, but it's fully integrated in our tools. Um, but no one wants to use it. So the law says in Switzerland, so it's it's the FINMA, the financial regulator that um, has this AML rules. And since the financial regulator is not responsible for these type of markets, um, also the AML rules do not apply. Why is the financial um, regulator not responsible for these type of markets? It's because it's the issuer itself creating a market for its own shares without any financial intermediary involved. So that's the, that's the thing. Since there is no one commercially trading these shares, FINMA is not responsible. And that's also why the AML rules do not apply. Um, when it comes to sanction list checks, um, of course, you're still obliged to do that. Um, let's say, we, for example, the sanctions against Russia, um, you have to comply with that, of course. And then there is always the question, if you want to do this on the smart contract level, so block someone with a certain wallet address from buying, or if you want to do that on the shareholder registry level. Because if you write that um, down in your articles of association, you always have the possibility uh, to deny someone from entering in your shareholder registry, even though the physical, um, let's say it's a paper or it's a token, doesn't matter, but the the, the token or the share has been transferred, you can still deny a shareholder to become part of a shareholder registry and benefit from the investor rights, from the shareholder rights. So there are two types. We offer uh, both solutions. Usually the uh, KYC is, is not used by our clients, um, but then of course the sanction list check on a shareholder registry level uh, is performed. Let me talk a bit now about the, the the market structure. You mentioned a minute ago that uh, uh, there's no intermediaries involved in, in trading these shares. And if I've understood your model correctly, the issuers are providing liquidity themselves. Not There's no secondary market. They're doing it, and they're doing it on a principle-based model, a bit like the, um, the classic open-ended mutual fund structure in which the companies will buy back the shares of any investors that, that wish to sell. What are the, what are the pros and cons? Although I can see how you start there. What are the pros and cons of that of that model? Mm, very good question. So the pro is you don't have to have a lot of trades in order to provide some, some liquidity for, for selling the shares. Usually, if you work on an order book-based uh, approach, you have to have enough trades because otherwise you don't have the matching and, and there are large spreads between bid and ask. And that problem you don't have if the company provides a certain amount of liquidity and you can make sure that a certain amount of trading can take place. So on the downside, of course, uh, the company always has to reserve some liquidity they, that they can use otherwise or could use otherwise um, that they have to reserve. And of course, reserving liquidity also comes with, with a cost. And as the liquidity is gone, so if you have a lot of selling pressure, at some point the liquidity will be gone. And then you don't have an automated way of selling your shares anymore. So what we do here is basically a combination of primary and secondary market with the issuer providing the liquidity and a smart contract that is, is um, taking the role of an automated market maker. Having said that, um, I don't know if that would be your next question, but we are also exploring uh, additional options. 
Well, I, I don't know whether that's my next question either, but I'm interested in this action Ariette uh, broker bot you have. What, what part does that play in, in the process you've begun to describe there? Yeah, the broker bot is basically the elementary tool um, that allows the trading here. So the broker bot is a user interface of a smart contract. So in the background, there is a market smart contract. And the smart contract, to make it simple, just make sure that if one party um, receives the shares, the other party also receives the money, right? So we make sure that the trade takes place and both parties get what they, what they uh, need to get. And then the broker bot basically is always involved. If you want to buy or sell shares, you always go through this smart contract and or the interface of this, uh, smart contract, what we call the broker bot. So no matter if you're buying or selling, you will always go through this interface with this market smart contract in the background. Is there a vision here of eventually uh, this will evolve into a, a, a full familiar secondary market? trading mechanism complete with the sort of intermediaries we see in classic stock markets, you know, like, like market makers, like, like lead brokers, and indeed perhaps even like investment banks coming along to structure issues. Is that where you see yourself in terms of market structure evolving into something which looks quite like the market we've come to know and love, but is based upon this new, more efficient technological model? Or am I just... Yeah, we are observing um, very well what is going on, but it really depends on the development of the market. Usually these markets never offered enough liquidity for an order book based approach to make sense. Um, who knows, maybe in future that will be the case and you will have much more liquidity on these titles and then an order book based approach would make sense. Um, but we are quite skeptical there. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, we are observing uh, how it is developing and we are quite flexible in playing around with different ideas. What we want to introduce next is an opportunity to still, um, let's say, place limit orders um, in case the company doesn't provide uh, liquidity anymore to buy back the shares. So you could just say, okay, I want to sell them uh, for a price that is lower than the official broker bot price. And then if there is a counterparty for this trade, this will be executed. Um, so that's something that we are working on in addition to the market that we already have uh, or to, to this market functionality that we already have that also uh, offers an opportunity to do trades strictly peer to peer without the company being uh, the middleman. I imagine you get asked this question quite a lot, but what's what is what you do? How does it differ from a small cap stock exchange model of the past? Um, I mean, it definitely has some similarities. It's just more automated. Um, it's usually cheaper because you don't have a, a party involved in the middle um, because the smart contract is doing the uh, the matching and uh, the order execution, you don't have post-settlement uh, activities that you need to take. So everything is uh, settled instantly, which makes it much more efficient and cheaper as well. Um, but of course, it has some similarities to, to what is going on today in these markets, yes. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you've been pretty clear that, that uh, the technology in, in some ways, whilst obviously very important to what you're doing, 
is unimportant from the point of view of the the issuers and investors, provided they're both getting value. You chose to build actually on uh, as a public blockchain rather than a private one, and you chose to build it on Ethereum, uh, whereas you could have chosen lots of other blockchain protocols. What governs your choices, and what what are the the pros and cons, the advantages and the disadvantages of, of the choices you've made? Mm-hmm. So, first of all, choosing a open permissionless blockchain is within the philosophy of Arcelor. So we really believe in the potential of DeFi and the potential that open and permissionless protocols offer. So um, that's why we we had to go with with open and permissionless blockchain and and, uh, not a private one. And then, of course, there are a lot of um, blockchains out there, open and permissionless ones that offer smart contract um, capabilities. But if you think of it, if I issue an ERC-20 token on the Ethereum blockchain, there are thousands of dApps of decentralized apps that I can use the ERC token, ERC-20 token on. And if you are on a blockchain that has uh, less action, let's put it that way, less action on the blockchain, then the interoperability is also more limited. So that's why we went with Ethereum. So for, First point is security. We know it has been around since 2015, working extremely solidly. Um, so that's one thing. It's it's secure and it has a proven track record. And then the second uh, criteria was that it's just you have the most users on the Ethereum blockchain and we want to be where the action is. So one example would be if you have your ERC-20 tokens, you could also yourself create a liquidity pool on Uniswap with these tokens, uh, offer a pair for trading, and then earn fees from that. So the interoperability with other dApps and the the huge ecosystem, millions of users that Ethereum offers was just too attractive um, to really consider uh, going with other blockchains. Um, This can change in the future, of course. Um, But for now, for these reasons, uh, the Ethereum blockchain was the only uh, meaningful choice for us. Finally, I'd like to talk a little bit about about growing the the business. Obviously, at the moment you're in Switzerland, you've got this very large private company sector you can grow into. When we have this conversation this time next year, you know, you, you on your own plans, you, you'll have more than three hundred uh, issuers on the platform. It still leaves plenty of growth in Switzerland alone. Are you thinking now uh, about how you can internationalize what you're doing, or do you think this model has to remain? Uh, and by this, I don't mean Swiss. Does this model have to be local, national? You know, you, in effect, you might end up franchising this in lots of different markets because every economy is going to have a different small company set up. It's going to be peculiar to that to that market. Or can you just take this model and park it in lots of countries and, and grow yourself a huge multinational business? Of course, there are some limitations. So it is our aim to grow it internationally, but... As you said, you always have to respect, of course, um, local law. And uh, there are a lot of, of points that you need to take care of uh, or need to make sure that it's that it works legally. Um, but we are right now in the process of looking at different markets and the regulation in these markets and deciding which one we want to go next. Um, the UK is one of the candidates um, we would really like to to offer our tools in this market. Um, but we are also in contact with, with some lawyers from the US and, and other countries. 
you would might think that the most important part in the legal framework would be the DLT law. And of course, it's extremely beneficial if there is a DLT law that allows to mint shares on a blockchain because the investors would get a token that is the share of the company. But there are uh, ways around it. So um, if there is no DLT law in a country, uh, then you could also work with something like phantom share. So let's say a contractual right to receive a share. And um, yeah, this is also an option that we are evaluating. You mentioned the United Kingdom, you mentioned the United States, you didn't mention the European Union. Hmm. Do you have access to the EU market? One thing that is uh, kind of disturbing in the EU market is prospectus obligations. So it's different in every country, but for example, in Germany, which would have been also an interesting market for us, um, you have to come up with a prospectus if you raise more than 1 million a year. Uh, compared to the 8 million in UK and Switzerland, that's, that's quite a low threshold. And it makes things much more expensive if you have to come up with a prospectus that costs quite a bit and makes it much more uh, much less attractive for our clients. So that's why um, we are not looking so much into, into the European Union and also the, the DLT law that they're coming up with. From what I can see today, it doesn't offer a, a lot of flexibility like we have it in Switzerland. And it could be that it's more limiting than really enabling uh, at the end of the day. Um, so that's why we're we're looking in different markets than, than the European Union. Yeah. Sorry to say. <laughs> okay. You you've been pretty clear throughout this conversation that actually this is about lowering the cost of, of raising equity capital for companies of this of this size. Uh, uh, and that's a, an obvious advantage of what you're doing. Do you think that's the main obstacle that needs to be overcome for for and this is a I'm asking you a global question here, but what's holding back the growth of the tokenized um, equity markets around the world? Because the advantages seem pretty clear um, and, and they've been rehearsed very well and ought to be very well understood. What is holding back the, the growth of, of tokenized share markets around the world? I think there are two factors. One is maybe the more obvious one, it's, it's the law. You have to have a law that allows to mint shares on a blockchain, because if you have that, then you have a really solid legal foundation and the investor knows this token is the share of this company. So that's the obvious reason that the obvious thing that is holding us back um, today. The other reason, which is also extremely important to understand is people still think, if you say blockchain, they think of cryptocurrencies. And with the latest news of the last few weeks and months, um, let's say the trust in the blockchain or cryptocurrency uh, sector didn't grow. Um, so that's also something, it, it needs to be really in the head of the people that they understand that blockchain is the technology that provides different uh, use cases, and it doesn't have to do anything with cryptocurrency, for example, what we are doing. You can use cryptocurrency to buy them, but you don't have to deal with cryptocurrency at all if you don't want to. And I think that's the second big factor. People have to understand that blockchain is a technology. There are different use cases. Not everything is as volatile 
uh, sketchy as cryptocurrencies, but you can have use cases where you issue a token that represents a fundamental value. And um, if people start to understand, then that's then I think the adaption of blockchain technology and, and such uh, use cases as we offer um, will increase dramatically. We still have um, clients that say, hey, we have one or two investors that wanted to invest in our company, but when they learned that it's on the blockchain technology, they got scared. And they thought, oh, okay, it's not legally sound, it's not safe, maybe it's a scam. So there's still some work to do uh, to change this perception in the heads of, of the people to understand that blockchain is, is not blockchain or cryptocurrencies doesn't mean necessarily that all the blockchain use cases are come with the same uh, issues, let's put it that way, than the cryptocurrencies. So lots of work still to do, both in the minds and actions of lawmakers, but in the minds and actions of, of potential issuers and investors as well. One final question for you. How will you know when you've succeeded? What will success look like for you, however long it takes? Hmm. Very good question. So I would say it, it takes another three to five years at least. And um, our ultimate goal, uh, to be honest, would be an exit. So to sell the company uh, to, to a bank or to a, a competitor um, or even perform an IPO, but maybe rather sell the company. So that would be success. And then, of course, you, you can, um, we could talk about uh, how much money should it be worth at the end of the day but i think that's a different discussion but if we reach a, a size that um, we could be bought by by a larger bank i would say that that would have been a successful journey nicola plain thank you very much